The title of today's message is Redeeming Love. Redeeming Love. And looking in the last several verses of the chapter as the writer closes out the book of Ruth, we see a genealogy. And this morning that might look something, uh, maybe it looks a little boring, maybe you have some, some sort of you know, room for it to be interpretive in the sense of how it relates to the King David and his lineage. And this morning we're going to be looking at this and really see what God has in store for us for the new year and as we wrap up the book of Ruth together. So the title of the message is Redeeming Love, and please follow along with me as I read in the last four verses of Ruth, chapter 4. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me as we begin our our journey in the scriptures this morning? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take even these words and bring Christ to the center of all of them. Run truth into our hearts where they're dry and needing needing watered, thirsty, famished for the living word of God. So, Father, we pray that you would bless in this time as we open up these holy words. And Spirit of God, illuminate our hearts, bring an understanding, an enlightenment, and even an application of the truth of the word of God to our hearts, lest we die. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Ruth is like the story of a tree. It's the story of a family tree, yet it's even greater than that. It's the story of the cross. But let's first talk about the stories of a family tree. In 1 Chronicles chapter 2, no need to turn there, uh, through uh, verses 1 through verse 15 is, is a further genealogy of, really, of David's line going all the way back to Judah. But when we think about trees, and here we see, maybe we see sort of a branch, if you want to use that illustration, in verses 18 to 22 here of the tree, uh, we're reminded this morning by this text that we need a tree. We need a tree. Not only do we need a family tree, and we don't even need a forest either, really, of trees, but we need a tree because we need redemption. We need a different tree than what we have started out with. We need a tree that says hesed. Not only a tree that reminds us of our past, but a tree that reveals God. We need a tree that brings redemption instead of rejection. And there's never been one born among men that didn't need a redemption tree. You see, you and I all have family trees, and all those family trees tell us is that we don't deserve to live in heaven forever with God. They're further evidence that we're sons of Adam. They're, they're evidence that we are, we are merely human and, and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And so all our family trees do really is they show the condemnation that has been set upon us. And so all of us, and there's never been one born among men who didn't need a different tree. We need a redemption tree. And Ruth is about redemption. And it's the telling of lives who unpredictably became woven together in the patchwork of Yahweh's hesed. It's a story where we see redemption come down from heaven embraced on human terms, and infused with divine salvific promises. 
Maybe you're here today wondering if there's anything in you that is worthy of redemption. Or maybe you're wondering, how does one become redeemed? Or maybe there needs to be a return of the peace and joy in your troubled heart, though you have been redeemed. Well, let's look together one last time in Ruth and discover again what it is in redemption that makes it a worthy theme for the whole book. But even more so, what makes redemption a worthy theme for a whole life? Or for example, a whole year, like 2023. So we'll be looking really briefly this morning at two truths from our passage today. And number one, and that is redemption is in the meeting of piety and providence. Redemption is in the meeting of piety and providence. You know, we can never know the effects that our devotion to Jesus Christ has on future generations. We can never know the effects that our devotion of Jesus to Jesus Christ has on the community around us. We can never know the devotion that Jesus, uh, to, of our lives that Jesus Christ has to the praise of his glory. We just don't know what God will do when we surrender our lives to him. But it will be great and it will be good and it will be broader and bigger than even our lives ourselves. We are not the end to the praise of God's glory. In the sense, we are part of it, we are the beginning of it, we are the middle of it, but we are certainly not the end. We have no idea what God will do when we give our lives to him this year and wholly and completely. The hope of Israel in King David is, a, is helpful for us to understand. More than 400 years had passed since Israel had possessed the land when we come to the book of Ruth. And it was fraught, this, these years were fraught with bitterness and blessings. Many, many generations had suffered and, and thrived overall. It was just a tumultuous time. The people demonstrated over and over that they would not follow Yahweh as their king. Jealous of other nations who ironically had human and failing kings, they begged and pleaded with God to have a human king. God gave them Saul, who was a disaster of a king for them. The real problem with Saul was like he was like looking in a mirror. He was like Israel. He was them. Such seems, by the way, to be the case so often when we ask for leaders to lead us, as we find ones that look a lot like us. And soon God would show his mercy and bring them a man named David who is better than Saul. At least he would be a God-fearing man, a man who was known to be a man after God's own heart. And David was... He was like a Messiah in many ways for Israel. Coming out of the book of Judges, remember, that's where we get Saul and David. Coming out of this, this dark and wicked time of the Judges, we get Saul and then we get David. But David was especially the symbol of God's favor and a signal of incarnate power of his chosen blessed nation in the face of its terrible enemies, including, as you would remember in David's life, Goliath and the Philistines. One of the questions that linear genealogy answers is, where did we get David from? And that's what this, this answers for us. And this is a reminder, these, these verses are a reminder that God raised David up for his great purposes from among some of the most unlikely and unworthy people and some of the most foreign places to God's grace. From a barren Moabite woman and an unfaithful Israelite family, 
and from a humble and obedient man who is full of hesed. We don't just see the mercy of God in Boaz, but really all through Judah's family that even led all the way up to Abraham. And so this genealogy is really meant to show us how how a family includes redemption when we read it the right way. You want to know how God has set his hesed upon you? Sit down and pour over your family history. Look at your family tree. Let that be a reminder for you of just how full of hesed God is. Somewhere in in your family tree are stories upon stories of the most unlikely people in the unlikely places, and you're, you're one of them. And that's how every family tree reads under Adam. None of us have a family tree worthy of the Messiah. So when we read this genealogy, and when we read genealogies really in the scriptures, the genealogies aren't just proof texts for a particular lineage. When we come across different genealogies all through the Old Testament, sometimes we begin to yawn, and sometimes we laugh at ourselves, and sometimes we just skim over names because we don't know how to pronounce them. We don't know sometimes why they're there. Maybe we feel like maybe there's at least a historical context for their placement. But the fact is, each genealogy recorded in Scripture reads like a story. And that's what we're meant to understand when we come across genealogies in the Scriptures is a story upon story. We as Christians and we as Bible believers, we don't come to genealogies like some unbelieving archivist. We come to them with inquiring faith, filled with illuminated minds and hearts by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit himself. Jesus, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit is the one who includes genealogies in Scripture. He's the one who placed them there. And it wasn't to bore us to death or to mock our linguistic abilities or the lack thereof to mispronounce the ancient and foreign names that are included in the family trees. You see, genealogies are always about the tree. And it's not the family tree that they're all about. All about. It's about the cruel and yet beautiful tree where our Savior and Lord hung. And we sing a song about that tree, written by George Bernard, called the Old Rugged Cross. When we look at that tree, we say, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross, where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me, for the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. To that old rugged cross I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. And the chorus sounds like this, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross, till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. The old rugged cross, that splintered and bloody tree, 
does have a wondrous attraction. It's rooted in the work of God through families and people just like you and I. We know that there's only one on that tree that belongs there. Our names aren't on that tree. Our names are on the family tree of those who crucified and killed our Savior. That's where our names were. But one name is on that tree, that old rugged cross, so that all of our names could be redeemed. So the story of genealogy is the story of, of the tree. It's where our names are and where our names are not. We don't belong in the family tree of Jesus Christ, yet he climbed that tree and testified that we are invited and called to a different family than where we started out at, a different family than where we began. A family not fraught with brokenness, barrenness, sorrow, hatred, and death. He invites us into a family in Christ that is blessed and sanctified and at peace and with itself and not at war. He invites us into a family tree who feasts on love and walks through storms in complete peace. Not like the tree, the family tree where you and I were born into. An entirely different tree. The second truth that we find here this morning is that redemption is in God's routine choosing to use the most unlikely to fulfill his mission. That is, redemption is in God's choosing to use the most unlikely to fulfill his mission. This book begins with a family and its people. Remember, at the very beginning of the book, he says, and this is the, this is the life of Elimelech, as he, as he along with Naomi walks with his two sons into Moab. It begins, the story begins with a family and its people. And it ends, it ends with a family, but a different family. The bookends tell us the reason for the writing. Do you catch that? If all you had was the first couple verses of Ruth and the last couple verses, you could tell the whole story. Just about. Because it ends differently than how it began. The bookends tell us the reason for the writing. Between the beginning and the end of this book are names who over and over demonstrate hesed self-sacrificing acts of kindness toward one another. Throughout the movements of what we would call horizontal hesed, that is, relational hesed, are great evidences of God's working behind the scenes in his divine providence. And all through the providential dealings of God, we see that he was rewarding humility and piety with fullness and the hesed of himself. Obed's birth. As we had, re- we had studied last week and as we see in this passage, Obed's birth symbolizes so much of what this book is about. His birth and life is the convergence of the themes of the covenant, loving devotion and divine providence. The writer of Ruth was signaling that the blessings in Ruth and Boaz's family had only just begun with Boaz, with Obed. The reward for Hesed and because of Hesed, didn't end with Obed. What the writer did not know was the actions of these people was laying the groundwork for a family tree and the blessings of God beyond their wildest imagination. The salvation of mankind would become the extension of the events of these people in this particular time who were just living out their life, gathering barley, moving about, marrying, having children, There was setting into motion the events that would eventually lead to God's salvific fulfillment. Here in the midst of the time of the judges, 
God was doing a wonderful work. And if you read the book of Judges, you don't see this story. And so he puts it right here for us, that when we come out of the book of Judges, we are, oh, he was up to something really spectacular. The dark times of unbelief and rebellion typical to the period of Judges would not stand in the way of God's desire to bring about the saving of his people. Like in the song we've sung over the past several weeks, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, in verses 4 through 6, the lyrics read like this, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From the depths of hell your people save and give them victory or the grave. O come, O key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe for us the heavenward road and bar the way to death's abode. O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. This song could have well been sung by Naomi and Ruth as they welcomed the arrival of little Obed into their homes in the midst of the darkness of the time of Judges. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. Did God do that? He absolutely burst into their home, not only in the sign of his favor in opening the womb again of Ruth, but also by bringing about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, God surprises us by his movement of hesed, and often even in the choosing of who he will use in his hesed. If you're not surprised by God's movement of hesed towards you, it's likely that you have not known what true hesed is and evaluated the depths of your extreme need for hesed. For hesed ought to surprise us all of the time. In one way, it ought to be predictable that yes, we serve a God whose covenant is mercy, but on the other end, it ought to just humble us and draw us to wonder and worship to know that he has set his hesed upon us. Isn't that like our God? It's like our God. It is always, it will always be an unlikely candidate that there is, because there is no one who is likely to begin with. The whole purpose, the whole idea of Hesed is that we don't deserve it. I'm not someone who's likely to receive it in the first place. There's a little bit of a false premise in the sense that God only sets his Hesed on those who are unlikely and that we would be surprised that we are unlikely, but the fact is that nobody on this planet is deserved, has said. No one is qualified or worthy to carry out the demands of redemption who is born of Adam. So we look, we look around and we see, who does God have to choose from in order for him to set his hesed upon? It's an, it is unlikely in that we are all represented. You see, the choosing of the Moabite woman and a Hebrew man remind us that even the lineage of our Lord would represent all of humanity. A Jew and a Gentile had come together. This wasn't the first time. But again, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, rich and poor, all of it here in the genealogy. We're left at the end of this book to ask the question, since this book is about redemption, since it's about Hesed, then who is the Redeemer? Who is the Redeemer in the book of Ruth? 
Is that Naomi because she returned to Bethlehem after hearing that God had returned his favor upon the land and the people? Is it Ruth who is loyal to Naomi's side and, and wins the heart of a kinsman, redeemer? Is it Boaz who is faithful to redeem the heart and the home of Ruth? Or could it even be Obed who represents the joining and the unlikely union of a Jew and Gentile? And in Obed, the promise, he holds the promise of the coming of a great king for all of Israel. Well, I would suggest to you, as we finish out our study in the book of Ruth, it's all of these, and yet it's greater than these. It's like God just put redeemer after redeemer after redeemer in this book. And then with the genealogy, fills us in that there is a great Redeemer coming. He's going to be the Redeemer of all Redeemers. He's going to be the Redeemer of Boaz. He's going to be the Redeemer of Naomi and Ruth and Obed and Elimelech and, and Israel and his people and Gentiles. And, and, and he's going to be the Redeemer of all Redeemers, like he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the Redeemer of all Redeemers. He's not born from the son of Adam. He's the son of God. And so it's all these. And yet it's greater than these. And so we know that Jehovah himself, it is Jehovah himself whose wing is greater than each of these sparrows. Yahweh is the one who hovered over them all with his mighty wing of power and providence, and promise, and protection. You see, God's ways are, are like his wings. He can bring refuge for a Moabite woman. He can adopt her into his covenant family. And against all odds, he can weave her into his agenda and plans so that she becomes the great-grandmother of David and, and the great-great-grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ. If this is Hesed, then surely the wings of his Hesed are open wide enough to cover people like you and I. It will need to be that in this new year that we huddle under the mighty wings of El Shaddai, the Almighty One. For it is the Almighty One who looks down on us with all Hesed the one who delights in spreading the wings of his might and love over us. Though we are weak, though we are barren, though we are unknown, because Hesed is in his wings, we are no longer a people who are weak and helpless. We are no longer a people who are barren and empty. We are no longer anonymous because we are his. We are Ruth. We are the beloved, and he is Yahweh. Let's pray.